We are uh, second week into our book study of Daniel. I hope you enjoyed last week. We're talking about how to have a respectable faith in a hostile age. And uh, boy, this uh, uh, needed now more than ever. I think we can uh, see that. Have you ever thought the world was kind of spinning out of control? And you look at that is, you know, today's message, we go into it, realize that there is a, God has an answer to this, and we have peace in the midst of this time, and why, and it's not just a light kind of peace, uh, we also have purpose in this age. Now, last week we talked about one of the first keys to having a respectful faith, and that's to know who we are, now that we're believers in Christ, and uh, know whose we are, that we actually belong to the God of the universe, and that really makes a difference, doesn't it, in how we live our life, how we perceive the world, and that really is a foundation I think for the rest of everything kind of builds on that. And we see that Daniel started there, but he didn't end there. And then one of the problems that we have sometimes in our Christian faith is we start by saying, yes, I'm a Christian. I know I belong to God. And then we stop. And, and our faith then uh, ceases to become very effective and respectable to those around us. They say, you're a Christian, so what? I, I know that um, I have uh, my, my uncle who might be passing today. He's uh, in Greeley, got moved down to hospice, and he's a man that... Uh, went through war, and in that time, he had a very difficult time justifying what he saw in this world with a loving God. And uh, so through his whole life, uh, very much stepped apart from God and said, you know what, I, I can't think that God is, would be even existing or loving based upon the things that I have seen in, in war. And uh, we've talked over the years. I was an electrician with him um, for... Um, you know, for, for many years and uh, worked together, got to know him really, really well. And even now on his deathbed, uh, you know, as I went down and talked to him and we're close, but he said, Aaron, I don't want you to talk about your faith. Don't pray for me, right? Don't pray. Um, I don't want that. I don't believe in that and how tragic this is. And also for his his kids and his next, uh, the generation. And part of that goes to when I was asking about, you know, why? <laughs> because I figure he's not going anywhere. So, uh, you know, I might as well ask him. Um, I said, you know why? You know, Joe, you've, you've known me. You've known my faith. You've seen it in my life. You know, it's something that I would like to do to be able to honor you and, and all of this. And he says, well, yeah, you, he said, Aaron, you and Amy, I've, you know, I can see that you, do, you follow what you think is in the Bible and stuff. But I've known all these Christians throughout the years, you know, and they don't, what they'll do is they pray and they don't do anything. And, and he said, if you want to do something, then, you know, take care of my kids. And I said, well, Joe, we'll definitely do that. But it's one of those things that we see in life that our witness has to be more than just what we say we are. Because you affect people more than you know. And those of us who are in Christ need to know more than just who we are and whose we are. We have to actually take that to the next level, right? And so it's important for us as we are the body of Christ that we need to work together and make sure that our testimony is consistent and so we're going to talk about that today. Kind of what's that next thing? After we know who we are and whose we are in Christ, what comes next? And Daniel, uh, he, he found this thing, but it, it was based upon a truth that we're going to discover here. It's in a memory verse for today. It's Daniel 2.20. He says this, Praise be the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. Just as much as we can't begin living our Christian life until we understand that, that we are Christ's, <laughs> We really can't take that next step until we understand exactly who God is and what, what he deserves. And that becomes the foundation for us to take that next step. So it's important for us. We want to make sure we get this into our hearts. So let's, let's memorize and say this together. Here we go. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. Daniel 2.20. Think about what you're saying. Praise. 
God is good, right? And not just, we're talking about just his name, right? even what he represents him, not just now, but forever. This is not a temporary thing. And why? Because he gets it. Wisdom, God understands, and he has the ability to do amazing things. This is why this is not just a time we come together and sing fun songs and when we leave feeling better about ourselves. We have a God who reigns forever, and wisdom and power belong to him. No one's going to dethrone him. We need this. We need to remember this, especially now in these days. That's why in your, memory, uh, in your, in your, in your bulletins there's a memory verse card. You take that card out. I mean, this week, think about how many times this week it's, it's, it's important for us to remember that God is, is still on the throne, right? That God has wisdom, he's got purpose and things, and he can use us, right? That he understands. Think how many times this week that it have been helpful to know that and to rely on that. Take that memory verse card out and spend some time with God this week, reminding yourself of this truth. Let it sink into your soul. Our God is an amazing God. Now, we know that we live in a hostile age, not just hostile against Christianity. We live in a hostile age. I think Las Vegas one week ago teaches us that again, right? I remember when I was uh, in, in college when we had, uh, it was actually, we had the Columbine shooting, and that seemed so odd. And we thought, well, there's a, there's a bad apple, a couple bad apples, right? And then again and again and again. And finally, I think we have to realize that it's not just a few bad apples out there. Our culture is producing bad apples, by the bushel. Why? Well, we live in an age, I think, that as soon as we remove God from culture, isn't amazing that all of a sudden we start to see violence on the rise because our enemy is an enemy of death. We live in an era where we need God more now than ever. We must represent him well now more than ever. We need a respectable faith. And Daniel lived in a time of great violence. Living in, in uh, the, the extravagance of Babylon and the violence of Babylon, it was not an easy place to just exist, right? <laughs> and yet, in the midst of this horrible, hostile environment, he grew a respectable faith. And his church started out with him recognizing that he belonged to God, and he was a Jew, and he was going to, to follow God and trust him. But then he got a next big test of that, and we're going to read about it today which is a good thing. So if you have your Bibles, turn them to Daniel chapter 2. And uh, if you don't, if you have one of our Bibles, then uh, uh, you want to turn to page 613. That's where it starts, although we'll be spending most of the day in 614. And uh, if you need a Bible, we've got lots of them back there. They look like this. And if, if you don't have a Bible, keep it, our gift to you. Uh, good stuff. So as you're turning there, let's remind ourselves, Daniel's a prophet, uh, about the 6th century B.C. Um, and so we have this as... Uh, the, the book itself starts out with the story of kind of uh, faith in real life, the first six chapters of Daniel, the second six chapters of some prophecies that he has in there. However, this story actually has a little bit of both. It has a story of faithfulness, and then this chapter that also talks about that's God's plan experience. Daniel gets to experience God's plan in his life, and then we get to have some prophecy that talks about what God is doing uh, in the world. And Daniel gets to learn about what God's plan is, and that's God's plan foretold. And so that's kind of where we'll be at. And so um, we, uh, we read in there, it says, In the second year of his reign, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and so his mind was troubled, and he couldn't sleep. So the king summoned magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. 
Now, let's think about this. It's, he calls together. This is how it begins. Uh, it has nothing to do with Daniel. The king is having strange dreams. And, uh, and he's like, ah, I don't get this. So he calls together the best of the best. Or think about it. You, you have, he doesn't just call like one or two types of interpreters. I mean, he gets the whole spectrum, right? And so it says there he, got, uh, he, he calls together uh, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers, all kinds of, of people. Now, these were not just, you know, you know second-rate guys. Babylon was, was the center of culture of the ancient world. In fact, Babylon was the first great world empire. Right before then, we, we hadn't seen anything, the world had not seen anything like Babylon. And it wasn't just a, a blip on, on the radar screen. Babylon uh, existed for a long period of time. And so uh, it, it had been around, you remember um, Abraham? He was a, from Ur of the Chaldeans, right? You know where Chaldeans? Babylonians, that's where the empire, that was a long time before this, wasn't it? These guys have been around for a long time. And Babylon at center was the center of, of culture and academics, for economics, for power, for faith. In fact, the word Babylon, where the city was at, comes from ancient Semitic Babalu, which means the city of gods. Right? And, and so they built this city up to be a place that gods would be comfortable in. It was the kind of place where everything was covered in gold. It was the kind of place, of course, they had lots of, of the gods from around there that were uh, in their temples and things like this. But this was a place that had an enormous amount of influence and still does. Right? I mean, Babylon was, was a powerful, powerful place. It would be like if you took like Harvard and Hollywood and Wall Street and, and you had uh, you know, the, the Silicon Valley and you just kind of wrapped it all up into one city. Influential place. And you have the king having dreams and he says, I'm going to get the best. I want to figure out what these dreams mean. And then there was a test, right? And this is the part, I think, in Daniel's life where you've ever noticed that sometimes in life things aren't fair, right? Things happen to you and you have no power over them, but they affect you deeply. This was one of those instances because Daniel, remember from last week, he had just uh, graduated from Wise Man University, Right? And so he's one of these guys, but he was still just like a nobody, right? He was still, like, even though the king says, hey, you're ten times better than everybody in the empire, he still had to work his way up. So he and his buddies, they were still kind of rookies, and they weren't called in. The king wanted the top guys. He wanted the ones that were the, the heads of these departments. That's who he brings in. And so the king brings in all these wise men. And he says, you know what? I want to make sure that you get this right. So here's a test. And he says to them, and, and, and as we go through verses 1 through 12, he says, listen, this is what I want you to do. So that I know you're not lying to me and not just making up an interpretation, um, I want you guys to tell me what my dream was, and then you can interpret it, and then I'll know that you're, you're, you've got this, right? If you're really wise, you should be able to do this. And of course, the, the enchanters and the magicians and all these people like look at each other shocked because this is completely irrational. We can't, we can't read your mind. What they were expecting is the king said, okay, you have these dreams, and then they would say, okay, and they'd write it down, and they would say, what do these things symbolize? And they'd go back to their ancient books, and then they would look in there and say, oh, you know, a statue means this, and gold means this, or whatever, right? And then they would come back and tell them what, you know, tell the king what he thought. But he wasn't going to do that. He wasn't playing that game. He says, I want to make sure that you know 
so that, that you know what you're talking about. So you're going to tell me what I was dreaming. Then I can get it. And they say, wait. So they appeal to him and they say, hey, we can't do this. In fact, not only can we not do this, no human can do this. And I think it's awesome that the wise men of the time, the best of the best, recognize their own limitations. They say, this is not something that humans can do. No king has ever done this. No one has ever asked this kind of stuff. It's unprecedented. And by the way, it's impossible. Right? And, and I love how in verse 5, he, King Nebuchadnezzar replies to him. It says, the king replied, uh, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me my dream, interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces. And then, for good measure, um, and your houses will be turned into rubble. Now, see, ups the ante. I've, this is, I'm not negotiating on this, and if you don't get this right, if you fail this test, you're going to die miserably, and your families and your, everything you have will be wiped out. But the king's reasonable-ish, and he says, if you get this, um, you know, if you can figure this out, uh, in verse 6, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So he says, so tell me my dream and interpret it. Gauntlet cast. They asked for an impossible thing. And these men, of course, knew that they couldn't do it. So they appeal again, and the king says, listen, I know that you are just stalling, and you, you can't figure it out, so he orders all of them to be killed. All of the men who were in that room, but also because these were the guys that taught all the other, he's like, this whole thing is a scam. And you've been scamming us. So you're all going to die. So you're not just me cutting to pieces and your house is turned into rubble, but everybody who's gone through universities are going to be cutting to pieces and your house turns into rubble. And guess who was in that? Daniel and his friends. They weren't even there. See, life isn't always fair, and sometimes we face difficulties and troubles that have nothing to do with us, right? But then they have everything to do with us. It's in those times I find that often in me and my own faith, I kind of get angry at God a little bit. Like, ah, oh, you know everything. Why didn't you remove me from this, right? I'm sure Dan was like, hey, you take me out of my home in Jerusalem, right, where I'm honoring you, thank you very much, and you put me here in this pagan place, so I got to go through this lousy school and eat vegetables, right, and now I'm going to get cut to pieces? And I wasn't even there. It would have been easy for Daniel, I think, and his friends to say, when life is hard, it's an excuse then to, to give up on our faith, to forget who I am and say, you know what, God, you're not, you didn't take care of me in Jerusalem, so I'm going to eat the meat here. And you didn't take care of me, and so I'm just going to go and I'm going to live according to the ways of this, this world. I'm going I'm to be successful here because you didn't take care of me so far. Have you ever had that temptation? Because I know that I have. There are times when life's not going well, and you think, you know what, God? I didn't get the promotion like I wanted. Oh, God, I didn't get, I didn't get my, the house that I wanted. I didn't get the place that I want to do. I didn't get the health that I want, or whatever it is. And you say, God, because of that, I'm going to use it as an excuse to take things into my own hand. I'm going to do my own plan. Thank you very much. But when we do that, not only does it compromise our, our faith, because everyone else in the world says, what value is your faith? You're just like everyone else. You say you pray, but you don't do anything. There's something deeper that Daniel knew, and he said, instead of this, Daniel does some really cool things. Uh, Daniel goes, um, and he says that he, he talks to, in verse 14, um, he, he talks to Arioch, the commander, and says, hey, why am I going to die? <laughs> if you're going to kill me, why are we going to do that? And, and 
reasons with him. He says, can I go to the king and ask for some, you know, so I can tell him his dream, figure this out? And remember, Daniel had a voice with the king because when the king met with Daniel and his friends, he found him how much wiser than everybody else? Ten times. And the king wanted his, his dream interpreted, right? So why not give him a couple of days? Why not? See, Daniel goes and he, he reasons. But you know what? It was his past reputation. If Daniel was a nobody, if God hadn't given him success earlier on, <laughs> I doubt King Nebuchadnezzar would have said, okay, rookie, we'll give you more time. But was the fact that he was faithful earlier, now he can stand on that faithfulness and now he has opportunity and he cashes in. And he asks for the impossible to a God who has the ability to make the impossible possible. And he says, all right, I'm going to go. And, and he hasn't talked to God about this yet, by the way. Daniel's just like, let's, let's stop the hemorrhaging and let's talk to God. And that's what he does. And so I, I think, you know, we go through this. Uh, we realize that sometimes um, we recognize that we're not enough. And I think that God sometimes needs us to recognize at the beginning. When we're his and we belong to him, all right, we need that reminder that it's not up to you or me to save the world. Jesus has it pretty well under control. You have a part in that, right? But you and me, we can't create a Christianity or, or something that is going to change hearts and lives. Only God does that. We're not going to be able to, if we created every person in the United States and we made them turn into conservative Christians, right, who believe the Bible is the word of God, that wouldn't save our country. That's not enough. And we recognize that right now we're against enough Goliaths that really that seems impossible to us, doesn't it? We have to recognize at some point the vulnerability that we have, and that's okay, because our God is invulnerable. And that's who we stand with. And so Dan, through 13 through 16, he's, he's reasoning with the king. And, and then what does he do? He, the king says, all right, I'll grant you some time. And so what does he do? <laughs> well, verse 17 Daniel returned to his house and explained the matters to his friend, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And then what did he do? He urged them to plead for the mercy of God of heaven concerning these mysteries so that his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. What do you do? What's the first thing you do when things seem impossible and you just don't know what to do? Right? Some of us, we panic. We're like, ah! Right? Some of us just get mad. Right? Some of us just cry. We're like, oh, right? What does a wise man do? What's the first thing a wise man does when life is hard? He prays. He recognizes he couldn't do it. And he doesn't demand these things from God. Notice he says he gets together with his friends and urges them to plead for the mercy of God. And say, God, we could really use your help here. We need your help. But they recognize their position, that God is up to something bigger than them. Right? They recognize who they are. They're not God. They can't say, God, give us this. <laughs> We're here. They plead for his mercy because they know the God whom they serve. He's a merciful God and a kind God and a good God. And that's the first thing they do. I love it, the fact that they didn't go in and, and start thinking about what on earth could a king possibly dream about. Right? And they certainly didn't turn to their old study, right? Because they just spent three years th learning astrology and all those other things. They didn't get together the very first thing and try to have a little seance and figure out what the king was doing, losing all of their education that they just got. The first thing they did is they pray. 
so essential for us. In the age that we are, as much as other people around us might discount power of prayer, it's great for us to start there, isn't it? In fact, as the church, if we do anything that we have not first prayed for, we have to be kind of wary as to, did I make the right decision? Because I'm not putting God in the driver's seat, I'm putting me in the driver's seat. I'm not saying, God, let me bless your plan. I'm saying, God, bless my plan. And guess what? My plan and his might not be the same. We must begin by asking him, pleading with him, saying, God, we need you. Now, why does he do that? Is that because God has this ego mentality that he loves to us to be like, God, we need you? No, I thought that for a while as I was younger, but I recognized we need that. I need to come to a point where I bend a knee in my spirit to my God and remember and I'm freed from the fact that I'm not him. To go to God and say, hey, I could really use your help now. And you know what that does? It frees me from my own tyranny and from the, idea, the wrong thinking that I've got all the answers. When I have to go to God and say, help, I don't know what to do. God's like, yes, yeah, all right, I do. But I needed to say it first, because if I didn't say that, what I do go to God is and I say, God, do this. I know exactly what to do, and you need to do this. That's the difference. And Daniel started with saying, God, I need you. Help. Pleading for mercy. You know what God did? He answered. I love this. Every week I get to pray for you guys. And those of you who tell me how to pray, I love it because there are times, like usually at least once a week, but uh, and sometimes more than one person, but we'll... Somebody will call me or email me or tell me, say, Aaron, God answered. Yeah, duh. That's why we talk to him, right? And then when I know specifically what he's doing, God does answer. Sometimes not exactly how we wanted him to, but he answers better. And God answers Daniel. He did not abandon him in this foreign land. Our God was not the kind of God that was kept out of the city of gods. He is everywhere. In verse 19 through 23 we, we see his answer, and it says, During the night, verse 19, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then what does Daniel do? What do you do, the first, the first thing that you do when God answers your prayer? See, Daniel now had the answer, and now he could make sure that he wasn't going to be cut into pieces, which is a you know, probably a big motivation for him, right? right? He doesn't want to have that happen. I think oftentimes when God answers our prayers, how we respond matters. Right. We think of like the lepers when they uh, these 10 lepers met Jesus once and he was walking along a path and he sees these lepers and no one would even touch him. They'd want to stay awake. They didn't want leprosy and all of this. And Jesus goes and he heals them. Right. And, and and so they go down and they do what Jesus says to do and they get healed. And, you know, most of them just went off on their life. But there's one that comes back. And he says, thank you. And I think that's the part that we need to remember, that God doesn't just, we can't be spoiled children. See, thanking God is really for us. It's not that God, he is already forever praised. But Daniel remembered that this was a gift from God. He didn't forget the fact of the matter. He just saw the (laughs) divine hand, God's hand in his life. And so what does he do that very night? Well, he says, praise be the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He just experienced. It was not a theological proposition at that point, right? This was a practical reality that Daniel had just experienced. God had done what even the wise men of Babylon had said no man can do. 
Our God is bigger than mankind. Aren't you happy about that? See, God has wisdom and power. Here he is sitting in the empire of the world, and he says God has wisdom and power. Babylon might think it has wisdom and power, but it can't even tell what a dream is. But my God, no problem. And he begins there, and he reminds himself again who this God is because it's so important for us. And his friends did too because they were praising God. They don't get cut up into pieces. Yay, God, right? But before he goes in and tells the king, he also goes on. He says he changes the times and the seasons. He uh, deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in the darkness and light dwells within him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. Notice what this God who has wisdom and power just did. He gave some to his servant. He has given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Nothing is impossible for God. And I think oftentimes our faith staves just a faith that is kind of out there because we don't give God a chance. How many times in your life have you been at a point where you needed the impossible? That you needed God to come through. And if he didn't come through, bad, horrible things were going to happen. You had to trust him. And you had to say, I don't have a plan for this, but God will trust your plan. Because it's in those moments that God can come through and you see him real in your life. And it builds our faith, doesn't it? And it gave Daniel a trust in God's plan. So what after? What do wise men do after they receive uh, uh, an answer to prayer? They praise. We must not forget this, that our God needs to be praised. We can't be spoiled children and say, God, give me, give me, give me. Once he gives us, we run off and say, ah. We need to take time in our life regularly to thank God for the many blessings and the goodness that he has, to look for those wonderful things that he has entered into our life. It's a wise and a good way to live, but it also reminds us that our God can be trusted. Wisdom and power are his. And the more we trust him in our life, right, the more that we'll be trustworthy to him with our life. Now, we get to this point where God, he, he gets to go and he gets to say uh, with the king, hey, um, I've, uh, I've got the answer. Now, imagine Nebuchadnezzar was kind of surprised because the best, the best couldn't figure it out. Now you got this rookie coming in. And I love how Ariok, the, the captain of the guard, he, he goes in first and he says, hey, I found this guy who can answer your dream, king. <laughs> right? Takes the credit. Right, And so, of course, Daniel went to him, but whatever. And Daniel goes up to the king, and, and he says, you know what? Uh, the, he says uh, in verse 26, the king asked Daniel, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And look at Daniel's response in verse 27. I love this. He says, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain it to the king, the mysteries that he's asked about. He reminds the king one more time that all of those wise men and that great diploma that he's got on his wall and all of that, that doesn't mean anything. Right? This doesn't come from man. So in verse 20, but there is a God in heaven, thank you very much, Nebuchadnezzar, who reveals mysteries. He gives the credit to God, not himself. Hey, I came up with this great thing, which he could have done. And so he points it back to God, and he uses an opportunity saying, you want to see God in real life? Here's God in real life right now, and here's the evidence, king. And then he has said, 
He says, he has shown the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what will happen in days to come. Your dreams are the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying are this. And I love this. He doesn't just tell the king what he dreamed about. He tells the king what the king was doing before he dreamed the dream. Right? That's pretty awesome. That's like extra credit. It's like, king, I'm not even going to tell you what, what the dream is. I'll tell you what. You were lying on your bed wondering what's going to happen in the world after this. That's what you were thinking about. And then God answered that. Guess what, king? God knows your brain. And he knows what you're thinking. And he told you what happened. And now I'm going to tell it to you. I love it. He, Daniel says, no wise man can take credit, right? Dan gives God the glory. And then he gives context. And now he tells him the plan. And so we have this God's plan is foretold. And this is the part in Scripture where Daniel becomes a very, um, uh, I would say, a, a, a debated book. Because the plan that is laid out here is so specific and accurate, strangely accurate, that a lot of biblical scholars say there's no way this could have been written in the 6th century. And they say, because of this, despite all of the archaeological evidence and the anthropological evidence and all of the other evidence that we have to, to date this book back to the 6th century, they will say, because these prophecies are so specific and so accurate, they had to have been written in the 2nd century after most of these were already fulfilled. Those people don't understand prophecy. Right? When this was laid out, nobody in the world knew what was going to happen in the world yet. Right? That's why it's powerful. That's why it's written here to show us that God is powerful. <laughs> all of the evidence points that this book was written a long time ago. And all of his points. That th- now what you are reading here is amazing because what God has shown the king of, of Babylon, he shows him world history and exactly what God's plan is throughout history. I think it's amazing. And this is a message not from man. This is a message from God. And so he starts with, and he says, King, you saw a, a vision of a, of a statue. That's what you dreamt about, a big, great. In fact, I love how he writes it because it, it sounds a lot like um, when I try to do, um, I, I, every time there's a, a president, I try to like do a mimic him, right, because it's fun, right, to stand in the mirror and stuff like that and give my sermons in the president's voice. And I'm really bad at those things, but because uh, it's fun. And, uh, and, and I love how he, he says to the king, hey, this is how you... Uh, uh, this is what you saw. The match you look, and there before you such a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue of awesome appearance, right? You could just see our president saying this, right? It's, it's the kind of phraseology. I thought it was awesome, right? It's huge. It's amazing. It's beautiful, right? This statue. It's like no other statue you've ever seen. And now, I don't know why, but when I went online and I looked at all the renderings of what the statue looked like, they all kind of look like this. So they, it doesn't say it looked like that in Daniel, but we're just going to say because everybody thinks it looks like that. There you go. So then he says, all right, each of those things talk about different kingdoms that are going to come on the earth. And the very first one, he says, is the head, a golden head, by the way, a head of gold. And the statues made all these different metals, and they go from the most expensive to the least expensive, by the way, which should let you know the course of humanity. When people are in charge, do we become more valuable or less? Right? And we start with the best, the head of gold, which I think was smart because if Babylon was the feet of clay or something like that, then Daniel probably would have been executed. Right? So that was kind. He says, no, no, king, you are the head of gold. And do you think it's interesting because do you know that Babylon was called the city of gold? It was called that because they had all these things that were plated in gold. Right? They, they were wealthy and powerful. First great world empire started around 3800 B.C. The lasted until about 538 B.C. That's like over three millennia. That's a lot longer than our country's been around, by the way. This is an empire that has been around for a very long time and been growing in power and growing in power. And he says, you know what? You are the head of gold. 
And we even talked about some people in the Bible that had came from Babylon, who were Babylonians, which I think is really cool. Abraham was Babylonian. <laughs> and we don't think of that very much, but he came from Ur, one of their great cities, right? And he was called out of that to become a whole new people. Now, there are other places in the Bible that actually prophesy about this. One of them, I think, is as good as Jeremiah. Oop, let's go back. Jeremiah, in uh, chapter 27, of course, Jeremiah is at the time of the fall of, of, of the empire. It's around the same time as contemporary. He writes about this, and he has a prophetic vision. He says, God speaking, Now I will give all the countries into your, the hands of my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. All right? So he prophesies before Nebuchadnezzar comes in and before Babylon becomes massive, he prophesies that God is going to basically allow um, Nebuchadnezzar to take over all the lands. And then those little dot, dot, dots, because it doesn't fit on the screen. It says also you're gonna, all the animals, the wild beasts, and everything are going to have to serve him, which I think is kind of cool. Like He's given great dominion. And then he gives a time frame. All nations will serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of the, uh, for his land comes. Then many nations and great kings will subjugate him. Jeremiah said also in his prophecy, which we know was dated earlier than uh, when Babylon fell, that he was going to last for three generations. That's how long this great empire, after it had been around for a long time, it was going to last for Nebuchadnezzar, is going to have his, his, to his son and his grandson, then he was going to lose it. And do you know what happened in world history? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, he lived from 605 to uh, 561. He passed on to, I love his, the son's name, who would name their kid this, Evil uh, Merodach, or some, I love, if you name your kid evil anything, evil dash anything, you know you're in trouble, right? Well, evil didn't last long, uh, 561 uh, to 558, but his rule only lasted for about two years because he was murdered. And then his son Nabonidus uh, came into power, 557. And Nabonidus had a son named uh, Belshazzar, right? And Belshazzar was the one who got to see handwriting on the wall, didn't actually get to fulfill his full reign. His son, his grandson, and then you're going to lose the empire. See, God has a plan, and he's not, he's not even hiding it. He's like shown the world, this is what I'm going to do. And we're all surprised. In fact, if... If I was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, I think I would have wanted to go back and say, what about this whole thing, right? Because he's told us. Well, there was another kingdom. Belshazzar, of course, loses the kingdom. We'll read about that in, in a couple weeks. Kind of interesting, handwriting on the wall and whatnot, good stuff. But he says there's going to be another kingdom that's going to come. It's going to be silver, silver chest. It's going to have two arms, right, because it's chest and two arms. And, uh, that, of course, we know now that was Persia, Right? That was the, the Persian, uh, Medo-Persian Empire. And it's interesting, a couple things. One, silver, the uh, Medo-Persian Empire was a very commercial empire, right? And silver was what coins were made of. And so um, there was a lot of, of that. And so we have a lot of ancient coins, silver coins, from that empire. And as it stretched, it was much bigger than the head. You think about the head of gold was smaller than the chest. Most people have smaller heads than their chests, right? As far as land mass, it took a greater amount of space and all this. But also... Two arms. There was two divisions of this empire, first for the Medes and then the Persians, right? In fact, in chapter 7, we go back to this, and he gives even greater vision into this and talks about one's going to be bigger than the other and all of this, but, but there's this divided empire, this big empire. Also in there, it's interesting, and I, I read a, quite a few uh, commentaries and some sermons that spent, I think, too much time on this, but inside of a person's chest is their heart. And we think of all of these empires. The, the Persian empire was one like Cyrus. He had true charity and compassion, even on his enemies. 
Like you read about the empire, they weren't awesomely nice to everybody, but he had real true acts of compassion. One of the things that he did where the Babylonians said, hey, we're going to take over your country and we're just going to decimate your culture and we're going to move you into Babylon and mix you up around this culture. The Persians did the opposite. When Persia came in, they said, you know what? Uh, We're going to return you back to your homelands. And when they took over new people, they tried to include them in, uh, kind of a melting pot type of thing. And uh, that's when uh, we see Israel go back to Jerusalem. Daniel actually uh, was part of that, gets to rebuild the temple there. That was Cyrus, uh, got to do that. And so you have the the chest of of silver. And then below that is you have the belly and and thighs of bronze. And we know, know that's Greece and uh, bronze was perfectly fitting for the Grecians. When we think of Greece, what do you think of? Well, probably like a Senate and all that kind of stuff, but probably also like the iron shields that they had. The Grecians had these, uh, these bronze shields that they, remember Sparta? Oh, you know, Sparta. Greece, right? <laughs> Military weapons were made of bronze. It's nice and hard, and it wasn't as expensive as silver and stuff, right? And the Grecians, they, uh, Alexander the Great, remember him? Yeah, yeah. Uh, got to produce a, from, uh, you know, he, he, he expanded the kingdom through military conquest, and that's how Greece expanded, known for its military prowess and all these things. It's also interesting that it starts at the, the top. Um, the Greek empire uh, started very unified with Alexander the Great, and then when he died prematurely, um, you have his kingdom was actually divided into two different major sections, and eventually those also um, bivocated. But you, had, you started with Syria and Egypt were the two major uh, sections never to be united again. You know, the Grecian Empire, and, uh, and so we have that. Then he says, all right, then there's going to be iron legs. Well, everybody's pretty much on board that that's Rome, because when you think of Rome, we think iron, right? And it says they're going to be iron because these things crush wherever they go, right? Wherever they go, they are going to just destroy. And we see that when Rome came into power, it wasn't like any other empire before. Rome, basically, they just, where they went, they took over, <laughs> right? And... Uh, and they were definitely iron. Um, and so we see that in the second century BC, Rome beats Greece and Syria um, and, and also in Egypt. Um, there's a time that um, we have uh, where Rome just decimates the armies of Greece. And in, in, in spectacular fashion, it was very surprising because this was still the Republic of Rome, not the Empire of Rome. And in fact, the Republic of Rome didn't even really want to go into war. But they would go into war, and how would they go into war? They marched all over the place, right? They were mobile, more so than most armies had been, and they, um, and they crushed. And then we have the part that then it gets people, there's, there's a lot of discussion as to then what is the feet, the iron, the feet of iron and clay with the ten toes, right? It says uh, in here in, in verse 42 uh, about, oh, I was all the way back there in Ezekiel again. In, v- in verse 42, it says... Um, well, that was dumb of me. I turned to Acts. <laughs> in verse 42, it says that there's going to be um, feet of iron and clay, and they mix together because they are one people, but they will not really be one people. And so they'll be strong like iron, but they will also be weak like clay. Right? And so we have this uh, iron and clay being uh, the feet. And so there's different ideas as to what this was. Some people say, well, it's the Holy Roman Empire. After the fall of Rome... Right? The church becomes basically headquartered, not in Jerusalem, as much as it was also in Rome. Like after Constantine became a Christian, 
right? Then the Holy Roman Empire, the, uh, which is difference between the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire takes power. And so they say, well, um, Rome fell apart, so there were still portions of Rome in all of these countries, but it wasn't as strong, so it was strong but also weak. Um, there's that. Others say, well, then um, the Roman Empire, of course, eventually fell, and then you have you know, Europe as it was and divided, and then they say the ten feet will be the European Union, which the ten countries kind of coming in that same area and, and forming, which is interesting, and I think it's, it's very um, compelling. However, uh, in reading, I think the third one that I've seen that I, I found most convincing was this. It, it's not, it was the Roman Empire, not the Republic of Rome, but what we found there is the Roman Empire. And let's go back to that. Oh, ah, my, and then we had the kingdom of God. Now you get to see the cool graphic. You'll get to see that twice because that was awesome. I worked on that for like 10 minutes. Okay, Roman, uh, Jeff, can you put me back one slide? There we go. Thank you. The Roman Empire, um, in 27 BC, the Roman Empire replaces the, empire, or the Republic of Rome. And, uh, and so how does it do that? Well, you have Caesar Augustus. He's um, Octavius. He calls himself Caesar Augustus. That's name found familiar in the days of Caesar Augustus, that guy. He beats Anthony and Cleopatra, beats um, uh, the, the Egyptian portion of, of uh, the, Rome, uh, the Grecians. Or was still kind of, it was Rome, but they were still mostly Grecian. And he destroys them. And after that point, he consolidates power, not from the Senate, but into an individual, right? An, an emperor. And so we find that we have, and so you have the Republic of Rome begins. And the Republic of Rome is very aggressive. And it goes out and starts conquering, where the, the, or the emperor of Rome starts conquering. And what does it do? It starts to expand really quickly because of all these people and all of these slaves that are now called Romans. And all of these lands that are called Romans. And so it has the iron, the strength of Rome, all throughout this land. But it was also, these people were considered Romans, or at least in the Roman Empire, but they still kept their identity, right? Germania, Britannia, right? All of these, Spain, these names sound kind of familiar. Because these people, though in the Roman Empire, weren't actually Roman, nor did they ever really take that, right? The reason I like this is because not only does it uh, match world history, but it also matches the timeline, because it says in those days, in the days of those kings, God's going to do, let's see this again, this is just amazing. Boom! There's going to be a rock cut not by human hands. And this rock is going to be hurled at the foot of the statue. And it's going to destroy the statue and it will crumble into a big cloud of dust and then everything will be wiped away like, like they say, like chaff when you're, when you're harvesting. Of course, all of us know exactly what that's like, right? So it's going to be blown away and all these empires won't matter anymore. Instead, that tiny rock that strikes it is going to grow into a mighty mountain that covers the entire world. Now, when did that empire happen? He's talking about the Messiah. See, when Jesus came, he came when? In the days of Caesar Augustus, in the days of those kings. And he came, and he came as a rock that was not cut by human hands. This was not going to be a human empire. It's not like anything that has ever come before. And has the church of God ever been like anything that has come before it? We are in every culture, every language, every tribe, Right? We don't have a human person that we just follow. We have a Messiah who is God and man who we follow. Right? We have a kingdom that started tiny with one guy and then 12 guys and then an empire and then the world. And it fills the entire world. It has not ended yet, nor will it ever end. 
600 years before Jesus came, God gave Daniel the plan. He said, there's going to be these Gentile nations and they're going to rule the world, but not forever, Daniel, not forever. And I am the God who is going to cut out the different kind of stone and there was a different kind of kingdom that's going to come and it will last forever, Daniel. I have a plan. And he tells us exactly when he will come. So that the Jews would not be surprised when Persia came and overthrew Babylon and say, God, is now the time that you're coming? And they wouldn't be surprised when Alexander came through and swept through the land and say, God, have you forgotten? Do you have a plan of this? They could look and say, well, there's the, there's the bronze. Iron is coming. And they wouldn't be so shocked when the legs of iron came and crushed the land and say, God, have you forgotten? And they wouldn't be shocked as there were the feet of iron and clay. And there were other kings that were trampling over their land. They wouldn't be surprised, but they would know in those days. In the days of those kings, the Messiah would come. See, Jesus wasn't just the Messiah because he claimed to be the Messiah. He also had all the right pedigree. He did all the right things at all the right times and all the right spaces that God said he would. So we would know he's legitimate. And that king came and he said, this is going to be the nature of this kingdom. This is why Jesus said to, to, uh, when he was, before he was going to be crucified and he met with uh, Pontius Pilate and he says, you call me a king and I am. Right? But I don't have a kingdom like this world. Our God is consistent from start to last. Here's a prophecy from 600 years before Christ came, Christian, that points directly to Jesus. Do you see that? It's amazing. Our God has a plan, and his plan is to not just overthrow the world, but to grow something amazing in this world that will never be overthrown. What is that? It is the kingdom of heaven, not like any other world. It's not like other empires. And it seemingly came out of nowhere, didn't it? Do you think Caesar had any expectation that he was eventually going to be overthrown by a Jew who was a carpenter? who just happened to be God. Never in the wildest means. So it starts small, fills the earth, and what's the aftermath? Well, the king says, you know what? I trust in God's power and plan. King Nebuchadnezzar himself says, wow, there is no God like your God. He says, Daniel, truly your God is the, is the God of gods. Because he was still polytheistic. He still was under the delusion that there were other gods. And he says, but with all these other gods, no one's like yours, Daniel. It's amazing. So Daniel's God receives glory in the, in the city of gods. He gets to take the, the highest place. Nebuchadnezzar gets his first taste at the fact that he's not all-knowing and that there is a God, a higher power over him. Daniel, of course, gets all kinds of honor and glory. He comes from a rookie to being the top dog. And then Daniel says, wait a second, don't forget my friends. You know, they, they were helpful. Hananiah, Mishael, Ezariah says, you know what, don't forget them. And the king says, oh yeah, I won't forget them. They're going to be, they get high positions as well. They trusted God's plan. God was honored. God allowed them to be honored. So there's five great truths that we find in, in this that I think are important. The first one is that God is, is not a man. He, he's sovereign over world affairs. We look at the way the world is today. Christian, don't be, don't be terrified. We have the antidote to terror, don't we? Our God has a plan, and we're in the midst of it right now. That mountain is growing, and it is filling the earth, and nothing will ever stop the kingdom of God, and you are part of that. That's awesome. 
right? I think the second thing is that God does have the plan for this world. And we find the rest of it, like when we get to, to Revelation and we begin to see with the end of the book, doesn't that give us courage? That God has a plan for these times that we're living in. God is not gone and he's not, he has not just, uh, he has not forgotten us and he is not out of control, right? The, we haven't wrested control from him. Our God is in control. And he's ordering history according to his plan. Aren't you glad that as though it seems right now we have a crazy guy in, in the Asia Pacific that has got nukes, and we've got crazy people over there in, in, in the Middle East that want to kill us, right? And we've got all kinds of crazy people that live amongst us right now, and the world seems to be nuts. Aren't you glad that God is more powerful than emperors? That God is ordering history according to his divine plan? Well, I sure am. As I know that my God has a good plan, and he's got a plan to build, not to destroy. A great kingdom. His kingdom. And that these kingdoms of this world, I think this is important for us to realize too, all kingdoms of this world are temporary. I love the United States. I am as patriotic as they come. But before I'm an American, I'm a Christian. Because there's not going to be American flags in in the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) There's going to be the banner of the king of heaven. And that's my first loyalty because it lasts The United States is amazing, but it is still a kingdom of man, just like every other kingdom. And we need to look and realize that we are part of something much bigger than this world. And our loyalties need to show that. Also, our kingdom, only God's kingdom, is the one that lasts forever. It's interesting, if you read the book of Daniel, every time somebody talks to that King Nebuchadnezzar, the first thing they say to him, may the king live forever. Guess what happened? The king didn't live forever. But our God, Daniel says very accurately, God, praise be the name of God forever and ever. He's not going to wear out. There's no successor to his throne. There's no time period where it ends. We have a kingdom of peace that continues to grow. That's an amazing thing. So there's five great truths for you. Here's a great takeaway from this chapter is this. Trust in God's plan. Daniel had two opportunities to trust in God's plan in this thing. The first one was in his own life. When everything seemed crazy, he didn't freak out. He didn't abandon God. He said, you know what? I'm going to be faithful just like I was before. I know who I am, and I know that, that I'm, I'm a Jew and all of this kind of stuff, and the king wants to cut me to pieces because of something I didn't even do. I'm going to trust God is in this somewhere, right? And then he prays, and he trusts God's plan, and he sees God come through. That's the first way that Daniel trusted God's plan. The second way he trusted God's plan is he saw that the kingdom of this world, they were going to end. And guess what? Daniel actually got to be there as the chest of silver actually replaced the head of gold. He got to see that. He trusted God's plan. He trusted that God is the one who's truly sovereign, the one that is truly in control. We get to do the same thing. So here's your takeaway. Trust God's plan in history, yes, that God is actually still in control of this world. When we see horror and things like we've seen around us, know this. God said it's going to get worse, but don't worry about it. He said these things have to take place. But he's going to use them. He's going to use them for great things. Trust God's plan. Trust God's plan in our world. It's terrible that we see the horrible things that are happening in this world, but God says, I want you to be faithful in this world. I want you to be my agents of peace and love and compassion in this world. I want you to go and serve in my name, right? So let's do that. We're not afraid of this world. We overcome it because he has. But also trust God's plan in your life. I don't know where you are right now. Maybe you're in a good spot where things are easy. Like we talked about, blessed be your name when everything's happening good. But maybe you're in a time that's difficult. Trust that God is not done with you yet. God carries his servants through difficult things to great places. 
So though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, don't fear evil, for he's with you. Right? His rod, his staff, they comfort you. Trust God's plan in your life. But also, let's trust God's plan in his Messiah. Jesus was not an afterthought. He wasn't a mistake. He wasn't a surprise. God had planned from the foundation of the world exactly when he was going to bring in Jesus, and he showed us through history there is no other Messiah. No one else can save like Jesus. He is one that is unlike any other, and God, 600 years before he came, told exactly in world history when he would come and where he would come and what he would do, and he has done it. So if you're here this morning and you have not trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I will tell you, Scripture and history themselves testify to the legitimacy of his claim. He is God, and he has come to save and he invites you to be part of his kingdom. Trust it. So what do we do with this? Well, if you have your, my, uh, your, uh, your connection cards, let's take them out. I've got some things for you to do this week. Some challenges, next steps, homework that make us better. First one is memorize Daniel 2.20. Maybe you need to remember in your life, things are difficult, God. Praise be your name forever, right? And ever. Because you have wisdom and power belong to you. Maybe you need to memorize that. Or how about this? Why don't you read Daniel 2? I didn't read it for you today, so you could. But I gave you a good summary. Get into it. Know what God has. Or how about this? Say, pray for faithfulness. Because these are trying times. Just like Daniel was in trying times, we have difficult things. And we need to ask for God's help. And you're going to need his help to be faithful. So maybe that's what you do this week. I don't know what you're struggling with, but maybe right now you're saying, you know what, I could just use God's help. Trust God is there. Ask him. He answers. Or maybe what you need to do right now is trust God's plan. Stop having the bad attitude like God is about doing bad things. Our God is good. Trust his plan in your life. You might be going through a hard time, a bad time. God is overcoming this world in you and through you. Trust his plan. Don't walk from him in the midst of trial. Walk to him. Or maybe there's something else that God's asking you to do. The Holy Spirit's in there prompting you. Let me know. I'd love to hear it so I could support you. If a prayer request, write that down. This is your time to do that. And then um, I know that I, I do love to pray for you and our staff um, every single week. So we know how to. It's, it's awesome. Write those down. Here a minute. We're going to take our offering. If we take our offering, please take these connection cards. Put them in the offering basket. We would appreciate that. All right. So let's, let's take a second to pray for these and for our, for our offerings. And uh, then we'll finish with some, some worship. Heavenly Father, thank you for you. As Daniel said, everything, wisdom and power belong to you. But you don't just keep it all to yourself, God. There are times that you give us wisdom and power. You give us the wisdom that we need and the power that we need to accomplish the work that you've called us to do in this world. So, Father, help us to be a church that's about that. Let us be your disciples who build disciples for you. And, Lord, I also pray for these, uh, these commitments that we made. Help us to keep those in a way that honors you. May you build your kingdom in our very lives. May we be consistent and true. And Father, as through that, I pray that you would build your kingdom in Estes Park. Though it starts as a small rock, Father, I pray that you build the church in Estes Park as a mighty mountain that nothing can move. And Father, and beyond that, I'm also going to pray for our tithes and our offerings. Lord, use these gifts to further that kingdom, investments in the heavenly kingdom, God. May they be not just investments in your kingdom, but also reflections of our love and gratitude to you for what you've done for us in Christ. We ask all of this in his powerful name. Amen.